Hello and welcome to the Crawford Media Podcast. I'm Hal Crawford and today I'm in conversation with departing Mumbrella founder Tim Burrows and I'm talking to him about his book Media Unmade. This podcast is part of the Crawford Media Newsletter. I'll be posting audio like this when I have the opportunity to interview interesting people. If you don't subscribe to the newsletter already and you're interested in media in Australia and New Zealand, I would really recommend you sign up. It's free and I post every week on Tuesday. There are times in this interview when I assume knowledge about the Australian media landscape. I apologize for that and I'll try to do less of it in future. For the record, I have a list of people mentioned and some other explainers in the show notes online, halcrawford.substack.com. Hello, I'm Tim Burrows. Everyone always forgets the E before the S. And I'm the soon-to-finish-up-on-staff-anyway founder of Mumbrella, which is a media and marketing website for those outside of Australia. And I've recently written a book called Media Unmade, which looks back at the Australian media over the last decade. And Tim, thanks so much for talking to me today. And we're really here to talk about Media Unmade. And I want to get across straight away that the book is an epic. I don't know physically how thick it is because I have a Kindle version which runs to several hundred pages. Is, is, it, a, is it a big book? It, it is. I mean, I think if you hit a burglar with it, I'm not sure they'd stay down, <laughs> but, but they, you, you, you might kind of stun them. It's funny, I, I, you know, when, when I was originally talking to the publisher, they wanted about 70,000 words and that was what we'd agreed on and it ended up being 167,000. I guess because we were trying to do something that was kind of authoritative and I think even the word the word in the original sort of pitch to the publisher was definitive and and in the end I suppose that's what it took to cover the major kind of bases of the media in Australia over the last decade. And you know what Tim I think you succeeded I as I was reading it I I was thinking well, I didn't think of the word definitive but what I thought was I was in the presence of Australia's media chronicler and uh, it really felt like you were the one who had seen it all and understood it all and uh, first of all just congratulations on the book because I don't think really there's any other person in Australian media who could have written that. Well you were very kind thank you and I and I suppose in terms of the, the point on understanding it one of the things I've you know learned in the process of doing a book and I know you've done the same thing in the past so you you, you might recognize this is is having the opportunity to actually think harder about the things you were covering or writing about at the time and and develop an understanding that maybe you didn't have at the time and I I think certainly for spotting some of the wider trends or issues or pulling out what was important you don't always spot it at the time so I think that's one of the parts of the process I really value now looking looking back on the writing process was just the fact that it actually gave me context by sitting and thinking about it deeply that maybe I didn't have at the time. Well, let, well let's start with that because you your, your scope is effectively a decade although you very often go back further than that um, to say 15, 16 years ago when you arrived in Australia it must have been quite difficult to decide what to put in and what to leave out. How did you do that? 
Yeah, look, I, I it's funny. There's a, there's there's a lot more obviously structure to these things than you you'd necessarily realise going in, or you know when you kind of breezily suggest the idea in the first place. So so I think yeah, one of the you know one of the things they refer to is a well, it was always going to be an eleven year decade of two thousand ten to two thousand twenty, and then it sneaked up to 2021 as well so one of those nerdy things is is to try and send some signals to the reader is using different tenses so a sort of you know the kind of the the basic past tense for things that happened in the in, in the last decade and a more imperfect sort of they had been doing such and such sort of prior to that decade to send a even if it's a subconscious signal to the reader and then i again to try and give a bit of pace started each chapter with something in often in first person but always in kind of present tense as a sort of little anecdote or or, or, or glimpse or whatever so so one of the challenges was was just figuring out things like which tense to use and how to send signals to the audience which is is something I, I doubt any reader would, would would even notice one of the single biggest I guess game-changing moments for me in the structure was talking to a, a friend who'd written a book previously and I sort of said what do you wish you'd known and she said just I wish I'd understood three act structures before I wrote my book because it would have been completely different so after spending a day getting to understand three three act um, structures I kind of reluctantly realized that's what I need to do I can't just have a chapter on channel nine a chapter on channel seven and so on yeah that would so, have made it stodgy and 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 hard to get through because there's a lot of detail so let's talk about the three acts so what are they yeah so and of course these are somewhat arbitrary but the the unmaking the remaking and the reckoning i guess is how we you know how, how you sort of think of it you know the the that sort of sense that we start the decade and everything's up in the air now obviously for different media they're all at different points and the challenges for newspapers are different to the challenges of the outdoor industry or the challenges of the radio industry and so on but but i suppose structurally you 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 had this moment where everything was so uncertain and then i don't know if it's just the human mind looking for patterns but it certainly felt that we you know we got to the you know the very recent history, the recent past, and all of a sudden things seem to resolve themselves. Now, of course, they immediately start unresolving themselves again because that's the nature of the media. It moves so fast. Just to jump into one specific part of the book, 2012, which is really the low point for Fairfax, and I think you paint that picture very well in the book. Let me just ask you a specific question. You know, Fairfax went through that near-death experience, 2012, things looked pretty bad. Greg Highwood did what was necessary. I think you described it as walk the tightrope, made the cuts without killing the patient. And then there was the merger with Nine and the name went away. You know, some of the board members remained and Chris Jantz was there. Now Chris Jantz has gone and most of the board members have gone. So did Fairfax experience near death only to die now i suppose the th- yeah one of the questions i've sort of asked myself is what's important is it fairfax or is it the newspapers and of course you know what what we have seen is the the, the newspapers well certainly the you know the metro newspapers and the sydney morning herald um the age in melbourne and the australian financial review 
survive and and arguably end up in a much healthier position than they were a decade ago. And that was very much down to the work of the people who worked at Fairfax at the time. But of course, then there was the merger, which was clearly a takeover by nine, which has you know resulted in nine becoming the biggest single biggest company and Fairfax not being around as a name anymore. So I, I suppose where I where I struggle a bit is the ethos of Fairfax was something quite special. Family ownership for many years, believing in absolute independence and for the for the broad part being quite a good custodian of those newspaper brands and therefore of journalism and i suppose the question is in the long long term nine axx listed company will those newspapers in in be in a safer hands going forward so far there've been one or two you know in the scheme of things minor missteps but otherwise i think nine has proved to be quite a good caretaker Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, Nine has proved to be a lot more agile than certainly I would have given them credit for from the inside. Humility is one <laughs> one of those things that I think, Tim, you do really well. Tell me about tell me about that. I, I do want to get to the big picture things as well, but tell me about what you've been wrong about over that decade as you've been observing and commentating. Look, I I mean, lot lots is the answer. I mean, I. I must admit, I, I always used to get a, a bit angsty about that thing of, you know, you you know I think it's your job to try and tell the audience what you think, and that includes the risk of being wrong. And then I rather liked Scott Galloway, the kind of tech and business commentator from the US, where he described himself as a, a catalyst. It's better to be the catalyst of the conversation and be wrong than, you know, not not, not to drive the conversation. So that, 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 that gave me a slight fig leaf to hide behind, I suppose, thinking about it like that. I, what was I most wrong about? Well, look, like most people, I didn't think Fairfax would make it. It was really hard to see from the outside that there was at least half a plan from Greg Highwood, which, you know, you, you mentioned Chris Jans moving on from now. And when he was at Fairfax, he was the one who sort of led the rescue act of the newspaper business model. So from the outside, I think that that was somewhere I was quite doubtful about. I didn't see television as having the longevity that it has. Now, I might be wrong again, but I still think there there will be a moment when, when it's, you know, quite soon where it's more challenge than than it is right now so that 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 that's another part and certainly something that I was wrong about was I was I was certain that the cost of sports rights would go down and then of course streaming came along and there's a whole new bunch of bidders and televised sports rights or streamed sports rights that are going through the roof so like those are ones in in in, in commentating and then of course with you know sort of being a, an owner and, and and running Mumbrella you know, we we made plenty of sort of you know decisions which didn't work out. You know, the probably the most expensive one was was betting on the the tablet experience as being one of the futures of publishing more than it was. So you know, we we bought a magazine called Encore, which had been for the kind of film production community, and tried to turn it into a kind of sister tablet edition of Mumbrella as a weekly edition, and it it cost us a couple of hundred grand to realise that that just wasn't what the audience wanted. Mm. In the scheme of of the media lessons that you write about in the book, that's that's a pretty cheap one. Yeah, it's funny. It hurts more when it's your own money. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
Yeah, it's not. It's uh, when you write about it, it's just numbers. In fact, <laughs> one of one of the more fascinating. I mean, there are so many fascinating aspects to this book for anyone interested in the media. I only finished it reading it last night, and I had to race to the end because you know you did you did go hard on that on that page uh, count. <laughs> and and uh, and I was sort of thinking now, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Yeah, look, there's definitely there were very few inevitabilities about where we've ended up. Certainly in terms of who owns what. So you know, I guess you've got wider, broader pressures that will you know send one sector, you know, the magazine sector downwards, and you know the the online sector upwards or whatever. But yeah, you also have individual moves by individual people or times when, you know, two deals were on the table and one was chosen over the other. And because the interconnectedness of the media, everything could have come out so differently. You know, there were there were there were plenty of moments when, you know, it could have been another player involved in, in you know, the, the merge with Fairfax, you know, Southern Cross or Stereo or something or, you know, or, you know, it feels like. Seven have flirted, probably Seven West Media flirted a number of times with News Corp, for instance. So it it feels like just with a, a few things tugging in a few other directions, could have gone a different way way entirely. And the thing is, I think we'd then be sitting there thinking, well, it was always going to be that way. Mm. And of course, you realise actually, you know, one of the you know one of the things I've enjoyed about the process of doing the book is is actually understanding that individuals, individual CEOs broadly, genuinely changed outcomes. Now, let, let's talk about that, Tim, because you include a cast of characters at the beginning of the book, and uh, there are 22 people listed there, and 20 of them are male, only two mm. are female. I wouldn't suggest that that is your bias. Tell me about the maleness of Australian media. Yeah, do you know, it's something I've, I found myself really raising my eyebrows at in the in the book, and it's it's nice of you not to blame me for it. My mother were, who in the UK was kind enough to read the electronic version recently, and she sent me a complaint about that. As a good Guardian reader, she sent me a complaint about that very point. And I, I you know, I, I suppose if there's a single moment that sums up the, the C-suite in Australian media, it was a photo call in Canberra when the media owners were were lobbying the by then they'd won over the government so they were lobbying politicians generally to change the media ownership laws and it was this array of i think 100% white but certainly very close to 100% white middle-aged men probably at 20 of them and then one woman in Cathy O'Connor who mm. at the time was was running Lachlan Murdoch's Nova Entertainment and now she's over in the outdoor sector at O Media, you know there were there are now plenty of you know female executives at quite senior roles across the media, but still remarkably few at CEO level. You know, a, a surprisingly low number. With some of the people, now I, I would classify you as someone who believes in journalistic ob- objectivity and prefers removed observer status for himself certainly with some of the people that you're describing i noticed disapproval chris mitchell i would say you don't like chris mitchell is that correct gosh that's really yeah that's a really interesting question yeah let's start with chris mitchell i don't know the weird thing is as a journo i i I really like big characters so i i've met chris mitchell probably Certainly twice, maybe three times. I interviewed him on stage at Mumbrella 360 
our big conference one year. And because he's such a, I'm trying to find a kinder word than pompous, but it's probably the right word, such a sort of pompous, egotistical character, he's incredibly entertaining. And that's sort of what you want in your editors out of central casting, which he, he kind of is. So, you know, there were... And he's a complicated character as well. Like you know, there were you know there, there were plenty of criticisms of the Australian as a newspaper under him, but it was also a formidable operation that, particularly when it wasn't writing about the media, was and when it wasn't fighting the culture wars, which it wasn't always. It was a really good product under him. I do think, and this is really an opinion I formed reading his own book, making headlines. I do think he behaved quite badly during the Kim Williams, the very short time that Kim Williams was a, the CEO of, 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 of News Corp and arguably made the situation worse because he didn't like Kim Williams and he had influence with, with, with Rupert Murdoch. So I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I dislike him. I think I'm amused and fascinated. There are so many things that I want to talk to you about with this book. You go into pretty much every major media form in in Australia. Is there anyone where you felt, for example, you do you talk about magazines, you talk about outdoor advertising, you talk about radio. Is there any area where you felt that you were on thin ice because you didn't know as much as the other ones? The bit where maybe I was, if not on thin ice, just didn't know enough about or didn't have enough understanding is there's always been this sense that outdoor media, outdoor advertising, if not now, certainly in the relatively recent past, was one of the murkier mediums in terms of the relationship between the outdoor companies and the media agencies that buy the media and, you know, sort of favours done and back scratching and all of that sort of thing. And although there's always been lots of kind of, you know, nods towards that, I felt that I just didn't understand enough of that world to tell that story. So I I, I, I kind of think that will be for someone else to tell of those shenanigans, perhaps. Mm. So one of the most noticeable changes in the decade that you point to is the shifting in expectations that journalists be impartial. So, or at least aim for impartiality. But that, that, that I think is one of the, one of the issues that I've really enjoyed thinking about a lot because it's something that sneaks up on you and it, it probably wants pulling apart in a couple of different directions. One is, I think, where the expectation of impartiality should be the strongest is when it's publicly funded journalism. So obviously we're talking there about the ABC an SBS here in Australia and I, I and I suppose where it feels like there's a real tension within the ABC there's two things you've got the journalist as expert analyst who uses their specific knowledge of a particular area could be politics could be something else to form a view and explain to the reader what it means beyond this happened today. And, you know, you look at someone like Alan Carla does it very well for business, for instance. But you also see sometimes certain ABC people much more comfortably state a view that reflects their worldviews. So, you know, one of the, the people I talk about in the book is Philip Adams, for instance, ABC Radio National, every night. So sets a bit of a, a tone for the station. And unabashedly left-leaning so that that sort of definitely feels like someone whose politics comes through many people from the abc for instance are i think really unfairly accused 
particularly on social media, of bias, when all they're doing is asking a hard question. And I think maybe where they're not helped is by colleagues who do go charging in on Twitter about the subject of the day, sharing their views, and it becomes very hard for the for the audience to tell tell the difference between someone asking a hard question and somebody arguing a point. So so that's that's definitely one point. You know, I sort of puzzled back and I I went back and watched a video which was sitting on on YouTube of me edit, me interviewing Paul Whitaker, who was at the time the editor of the Daily Telegraph, you know, the Sydney News Corp tabloid and, and now runs Sky News Australia. And, you know, I remember kind of putting to him, you know, I'm a Daily Telegraph reader, you know, I subscribe to all of the Sydney newspapers. And I find it a bit frustrating that sometimes when you I'm reading something, you know, arguing against the greatest problem at the time with the MBN, which was under Labour at the time, I don't feel you're giving me all the facts in order to make up my mind. He came back, actually, funny enough, much like when I was interviewing Chris Mitchell on stage, we're almost arguing now our job is to balance the view. He didn't quite use these words, but really argue about, well, you know, Fairfax argues in favour of it. And it, it felt like we were just coming at things differently. I don't think your typical News Corp editor would see that stodgy definition of the job of a newspaper to give the reader all of the facts and let them make up their mind. I think these days it's, you know, the the model is much more about giving the audience, understanding the audience and giving them what they want. Mm. That it, it, It's interesting. So in that conversation with Paul Whitaker, he implied that balance exists because there's another side who's going to be equally as partial as us and they're going to only partially present the facts and will partially present the facts and thereby objectivity is served or, or something along that line. Yeah, I suppose the other question I ask myself is we're so fortunate as journalists to have privileges that other parts of the public don't. So whether it's the front row seat, you know, the press bench in the, in the council meeting or in the courtroom or... The, just the right to ask awkward questions and the fact that people often feel that they, they actually should answer them. And my, my, my worry is if we go too far away from the independent arbiter, you know, emphasis on independent, you know, the being the honest broker, that there's a risk that journalists lose the right to do journalism when they're all seen as partisan in one direction or another. And that feels like, you know, at some point that could be some sort of existential challenge for the profession as a whole. Yeah, there there, there are a few of those. and I, I guess we could speak a lot about that. I'm a little bit future fatigued, as I'm sure you are when it comes to, to, to media, because I prefer to deal in facts, which is exactly what you do in your book. The... Um, at the end, you say, let me quote, the future of media will be about technology, but the strategy will be set by the clever, flawed, passionate, arrogant, entertaining humans who run the media. Nice two sentences. The future of media will be about technology. That hasn't always been the case, or has it always been the case? I suppose the technology itself has changed, hasn't it? I walked into a newsroom for the first time in 1989 and 
there was a bit of excitement going around because the first fax machine had been installed in the office not long before. And, you know, a, a few months after I joined, we had to give up our typewriters to move across to, you know, computers at every desk for the first time. I look back now and I'm so lucky because I just saw that last couple of years of, you know, using carbon paper to type out two paragraphs at a time on each piece of paper and shuffle your bits of paper for your word processing and just the, you know, the the excitement of getting a mobile phone for the first time and how that changed news gathering and, and you know, not always for the better. Mm. So let me just go on to the Media Bargaining Code because the, the last chapter in the book is about the Media Bargaining Code. I, I can't be bothered giving it its full and proper name. The the way that you describe that chapter in Australian media history, I completely agree with. You describe it as a shakedown with the government as enforcers and established media as beneficiaries. But if I'd written the chapter, I might have uh, I might have been a bit more judgmental than I think think you were. You see it, the Australian media as fundamentally grubby and compromised. It, that's just your sort of general worldview, and therefore that the that the drama around the bargaining code and and the shakedown of the international giants is was more or less business as usual. Tell me, do the ends justify the means in this case? Oh gosh, that is a big question, isn't it? If you were to force me to come off the fence, and I don't really want to, I think I'd say yes because journalism as watchdog fulfills a really important role and the outcome of the news media burden code shakedown has certainly in the short term maybe in the medium term guaranteed the funding of journalism at the big end of town you know we start the book as you say in 2012 with that that one week in june when news corp makes 1600 um, media jobs redundant and Fairfax make 1900 jobs redundant and then we get to the end and suddenly there are tens of millions of dollars probably getting into the you know more than 100 million dollars pouring out of Facebook and out of Google into the pockets of the major media owners to fund news journalism in the in the next few years and that will that will have the capacity to do some good. Mm. Tell me, you, you've been a keen observer of, of the Australian media, and as I said at the beginning of this interview, I think really you're the only person who could have written this kind of definitive history. Have you made friends inside Australian media? Yes, yeah, I have. And, of course, the... the you know the 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 challenge of that is you know something i always told the reporters on 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 umbrella and still think really strongly is our single job is to write for the audience as readers so that means not writing for your peers and rivals in the industry certainly not writing for your advertisers but also not writing for your contacts you know it's got you've got to try and tell it as it is as much as you can and I think where I've had to write about someone that I'm really friendly with and make sort of calls about it a you've got to disclose it but b you just maybe have to just sort of 
you know stay away from it so so you know there are there there are a handful of people who I would really struggle to write something super negative about because I feel I just know them too well and I've seen the best of them and I think I, I the, the the danger would be if I write it that way then it's going to come across as biased whereas of course to me I'll just feel like I'm using my special knowledge so I I you know I think it's sometimes it's best in those ones to let somebody else write it what part of the book is going to be most controversial do you think I'm not sure I can think of anything that will be super controversial now maybe that's naivety and you know in a week or two by the time this goes up I'll be you know trying to defend my terrible mistake but I suspect most people who suddenly find themselves in the middle of controversy didn't realize it was coming I don't know what do you think I think some people might try to make something of the fact that there are very few women in the book as as we mentioned earlier and that the women that are there uh, are not particularly admirable so there is no woman hero yeah that's interesting actually yeah I mean you, you you think about you know, women to admire in the industry and they are they absolutely are there so Kath O'Connor it was a bit of a pity that she was just in between jobs finishing at Nova and starting at own media when when the book was being written because I would have loved to have added her voice into the story of Smooth FM the creation of that because she was a a big part of the the, the success of, of Smooth but not surprisingly the, the the, the people Smooth wanted to put forward were the people who were still there, but she would definitely be one. I think Mia Friedman, in partnership with Jason Levine, her, her husband, has created something real in Mamma Mia and that that you know that business. One other woman who I think is probably also just worth recognising for you know as a bit of a shooting star because she chose to get out again. But Sarah Wilson. You know, she created a tremendous business in I Quit Sugar, which was absolutely a publishing operation. Actually, um, I stand corrected. When you write about Sarah, you write with true admiration. Uh, and I'd, I'd forgotten that chapter of the book. Well, I'm also just, again, I, I think the thing is with Sarah is I think she genuinely is, 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 is being authentic when she didn't go into it with some sort of plan. You know, she let it evolve and this authenticity was what let it succeed. Whereas ironically, I think if she had if she had gone in with a plan, maybe it wouldn't have done. So. So, yeah, definitely, you know, another another person who I guess the media scene is 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 slightly more bereft for not having her in it. So tell me about what you're going to do next. The first part is generally don't quite know. You know, I'm going to have some family reasons for spending a bit more time in the UK. But equally, I feel that my industry knowledge is all Australian focused. So I suspect that whatever I do, even for time I'm spent in the UK, will be more thinking about an Australian audience. I've got, a, still... I've got a question for you about yeah. that, Tim. I, I don't know anyone more curious about Australian media than you. Have you got the same level of curiosity and knowledge of the UK media? Yeah. Um, knowledge, no, because it's 15 years since, in fact, more than that, because I was in Dubai before Australia. It's probably about 17 years since I covered the UK market. One of the things I guess I've always 
been lucky enough to do in journalism is be obsessed with my beat at the time. So, you know, when I, you know, when I worked on local papers, I was, you, you know, you, there, there'd be times when you'd find me doing 24 hours around the clock because I was so into a story or something. You know, when I, I did six years on a magazine for, for hospital doctors in the UK, called Hospital Doctor, funnily enough, and became obsessed with the minutiae of the, the consultant contract because they were my readers and they were my audience. Similarly, had an amazing couple of years writing about media agencies in the UK for Media Week. So I, I, I think when I have a, you know, when I do have a focus and a beat, then yeah, I absolutely become completely immersed in it. But I've not been immersed, you know, I've watched you know, I've carried on watching with interest what's going on in the UK, but it's not quite the same as living and breathing it. A uh, bit of a changing of the guard. You're you're leaving. That that's a changing of the guard. But also, you know, Neil Ackland is is not going to be at Junkie anymore. Tim Duggan stepped away at Pedestrian. Chris and um, Oscar are no longer there. In that sort of independent, medium-sized digital media sphere. There's been a real changing of the guard over the last year. Is that going to make a difference? Um, I mean, it, it feels to me like probably, firstly, it's worth saying it probably goes in ebbs and flows. So you, you're right, there is a bit of a wave. And I suppose everyone came in at the same time or several of them did and, and, and you know, exited at similar times. Will it make a difference? Do you know, I think one of the one of the slightly depressing things is it really has been all along still the big media companies which have made the weather. You know, you you know, I give people like the you know the the Guardian have sort of clawed their way way in, etc. You know, maybe the Daily Mail, but but mostly it's been the big players have made the weather anyway. So I'm I'm not sure we as the independents can necessarily claim to have you know significantly changed the direction of the industry you know clearly made some sort of you know contributions but i'm not sure we made enough difference when we were there to make a difference when we're gone again you're being you're being quite humble just to bring it back to your to your wonderful and um, substantial book just to bring it back i think one of the really big conclusions that you come to at the end is that it is the big media, the big media who went into this Mincer at 12 years ago, 11 years ago, who've come out as the winners. Not all of them, of course, but it has been the traditional media companies who have really come out the other end. Yeah, look, and you were asking earlier about things I was wrong on. That was another one. I remember writing about a speech that Harold Mitchell used to be run Mitchell's one of the biggest media agencies and he gave a speech almost saying exactly that it'll be the big players who traditional players who thrive in the digital world as well and at, at the time I was on B&T so this will be getting on for 15 years ago and I, I I kind of wrote an opinion piece suggesting that he was wrong and funnily enough I, I was trying to find it again but you know the B&T website has changed a couple of times since then so it's it's lost to history, which which also says something because people who tell you that the internet is forever are wrong. When you actually want something, you can't find it. But but yeah, he was he, you know he was right in the end. Just in the nick of time, the the big players usually work it out. Wonderful, thank you so much for talking to me, Tim. So I, I really hope that you that you stay in Australian media because I, I do believe that you've been a, a, a force for good. And I don't mean 
in uh, some sort of hmm, approving <laughs> moral way. I mean, you've been a force for good in that you have brought a critical eye to the goings-on of Australian media. Oh, an absolute uh, pleasure for chatting to you. And thank you very much for the kind words. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Crawford Media theme music. <laughs>